You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. It's episode 203. I'm David Grubbs, your host this week. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Danny Anderson, assistant professor. Assistant professor? That's right. Rank. Okay, assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in beautiful Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, I was lurking over your uh, over your town via Google Maps, and I imagine it's probably quite beautiful. What with fall colors and such, is that the case? Um, yeah, the fall was great. Sure, we actually got our first bit of snow uh, this weekend, so it's ah. all covered right now. It was very strange, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, we're up on high on top of a mountain, so we get it a little worse than the areas directly around us. So. Mm. Well, very, 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 very cool, and I'm I'm full of envy because here um, we start to celebrate and wear sweaters because it's now down into the 50s in the morning. Ain't gonna snow, that's for sure. No. Well, with us also is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I imagine it will also snow. How it has, it has been snowing a bit. It, um, I think it was. I think it was last Friday when it went from 60 to to snowing in one day. Well, but that's all right, you know. Yeah, that's what we had. It was like 70 degrees on Friday, and then Saturday morning was nice. I took my kid to the playground, and, uh, and she's just playing, and I look over the mountain there, and I see this billowing cloud of, of like white cloud everywhere and i'm like we better get home and we got home we, i like saw the last 10 minutes of fall like disappear it was very strange <laughs> it was all it was almost immediate i'm happy i'm always kind of bummed out if there's not snow on the ground on thanksgiving mm. yeah i would i would do nothing but be bummed if that was the case if, if no, there I, was I, snow on the ground you mean i mean if sorry if not there not being snow made me feel bummed. I would do nothing but feel bummed here in Houston. I see what you're so, saying, yeah. Because yes. well, it's not going to snow in Houston. <laughs> yeah, no. When no. we lived in Tallahassee, I remember our first Thanksgiving, it was 92 degrees. <laughs> I was openly maybe one of them, suicidal. Uh, po- <laughs> maybe one of those uh, those polar vortexes will swing some stuff down to you. I don't know. That'd yeah. be a big one. Yeah, the polar vortices, I don't think they, I don't think they quite reach down here oh <laughs> uh, well we'll see we should mention hey. that nathan gilmore is on vacation uh our listeners will remember that he uh, his school has a new bizarre oh. schedule where they're done by thanksgiving and uh he and his family are at disney world today nathan's yeah. least favorite place in the world <laughs> <laughs> the most magical and least favorite place um what, what would you give to walk around disney world with nathan gilmore Mm. 
I just imagine him swearing like Muttley the dog from the old Wacky Races show, just like constantly. <laughs> Is it, would it be like that? Dadgummit! Would it be like that South Park episode where where Cartwright is like like your tears your tears taste delicious? Cart Cartman, I think Cartwright <laughs> is from Bonanza. Yeah. Although I, I smell crossover. Did I say Cartwright? You did, yeah, Cartman. yeah. I'm sorry. It's again see this time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Will today we are talking about the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T. S. Eliot, um, a poem that I have uh, I have loved for a really really long time. Um, it was actually one of the poems that uh, taught me to love poetry for something other than pretty prettiness, which Ooh, I was not really? always. Is, is that true, David? Up. Yep, it's true. Oh, see, because my, my – and I, I know I'm jumping ahead of myself, but my first memory of this poem is of that yellow uh, yellow fog that rubs its back against the window pane and, and like, how mm-hmm. beautiful an image that is to me. But I like Urban Decay, so maybe maybe I'm right. the sick one here. Well, <laughs> I, I, I guess I should just sort of back up and say that m- most of my, my earlier exposure to poetry was things like – things like sonnets or uh, the more you know the the more the more kind of pretty pretty american stuff um or uh, kind of more earlier 19th century american stuff or or victorian kind of and and this was a um this came out of left field i'd never i'd never particularly thought of myself as a poetry person and then here you go love song of Alfred proof yeah uh, me too, and I always like was put off to a degree by Elliot. Uh, I still don't understand the wasteland, for example. And, uh, and yeah, but and, who does? And so I, I just sort of have like it a for lot. a long time wrote him off. And at some point, I just hit an age where I resonated with the with the character in this mm-hmm. uh, with the speaker in this poem, and and I love it now. Um, I don't. Uh, pretend to have anything particularly smart to say about it, <laughs> but but I do just love to read this poem. So yeah, I, I resonate with it quite deeply. Cool. Well, I'll pitch this first one at you, Danny. Um, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock was written by uh, a very young T.S. Eliot, so a lot of the, maybe uh, some of the stories that, that we know about him, tell about him, um, were, were, were yet future. So how much of his early biography would be helpful for us in reading this poem? What ways might that might this poem make a difference to to uh, what we know of the biography that comes after? Well, um, I don't exactly know if this is how you're conceiving of this question, but for me, <laughs> what I thought of was uh, his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. Okay, and mm-hmm. I'm going to sort of hinge okay. everything around that essay. Um, Eliot was a pretty prodigious scholar uh, before writing this poem. He was taught at Harvard, and, and he was academically quite an achiever. And at his time uh, at Harvard, he, I mean, he was um, surrounded by <clears throat> this sort of great tradition of poetry. And when you read this poem, you see that tradition <laughs> of, like uh, manifest inside the, 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 the images that the poem provides. And so this is, uh, I think, in postmodern terms, we would call it intertextual to it, like a huge mm-hmm. degree, and we'll we'll get to that in a lot of ways, but uh, or later on. But um, so, when I see uh, 
the, when I read the poem, excuse me, I see his uh, intellectual training sort of uh, coming coming to fruition. Mm. By the time he wrote this poem, though, he's living in England, and I think he's a bank clerk <laughs> at this point. And, <laughs> and, and so uh, uh, you also see a sense of the potential for uh, not achieving uh, potential, I guess, uh, the, his uh, his <laughs> the potential for not achieving his potential. Uh, I'm sure there's a better phrase for that than I could think of at this point. Uh, but it's eight 30 in the morning. Give me a break. Uh, so the, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you can sort of see the morning for what might be lost also, uh, mm-hmm. manifest itself, uh, in, in many of the lines of this poem and in the character of proof rock. Uh, I read somewhere, someone surmised that the name, uh, at the time he was right, he was signing his name, um, T. Stearns Elliot, and so J. Alfred Prufrock is sort of like a an analog to the way he was sort of conceiving of himself at the time uh, in the construction of those names. Um, and so, uh, and then when you look then at tradition and the individual talent, um, he sort of tradi- tr- treats tradition as if it's current. I mean, this the the thesis of that uh, essay is that uh, the the artist, the poet. Uh, engages with tradition not as something to escape from, but as something to kind of build new things out of. Uh, and this poem certainly does that. And so this is almost him working out the ideas for a literary criticism that uh, he becomes well known for at that point. And it is with this poem, uh, Ezra Pound uh, was a major advocate for him at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and, at that, and after this poem comes out, he becomes the editor of a literary journal. And so getting to what this poem does for his career, I mean, this is sort of the beginning of T.S. Eliot, as we know mm-hmm. him, kind of the, the genesis of the T.S. Eliot that we remember, at least. Uh, it, it, began, it, it is his first real success. Ezra Pound becomes an advocate. He ends up becoming uh, the editor of literary journals and a prominent figure then within literature, within letters. And uh, so the the bank teller career is sort of over at this point. Uh, And the the Elliot that we know today sort of begins. He had published before this, but um, this is sort of his real first prominent entry into the world of arts and letters. And so in terms of his future biography, this sort of sets up um, his later success. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that I've left off, uh, quite a bit there. Michael, what do you have to add to that? I, I will say it, it was not the end of his career at the bank. I, I believe he worked at the bank throughout most of his adult life. Oh, I thought it was 25. I thought he ended at 25 uh, they, in, in 1925. I thought I'd read that somewhere. Uh, it uh, could you, be, you could be, right, you could be right, but this, this certainly did not end it. Um, he was because he he was definitely still working at the bank when he wrote Wasteland. Although he was also in a mental institution, I think we got to mention. I think we got to mention. What kind of marriage. bank lets you? Yeah, <laughs> commute from the. Anyway. That, that, that's what kind of sounds like Wall Street. So, um. I, I think we've got to mention his marriage. Mm. Yeah. Um, his famously unhappy first marriage to Vivian Haywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got married in um, 1915, and I mean, by all accounts, this marriage was just a dumpster fire. Um, and I, I really, I really think you can see Eliot's uneasiness with his marriage in the um, in the poem, which is which is, I mean, addressed at the beginning to this unnamed person with whom he is going to a party. So, I mean, it it. Uh, his, 
excuse me, <laughs> Vivian would be his uh, would be the natural addressee for the poem, and you can you can kind of see the cracks in that marriage already uh, in uh, just two years into it. Hmm. I, and absolutely the it's a bit derisive of women in general. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so I, I, you could definitely see the failed romance, maybe <laughs> like finding well, there's that line the- about, there's a line about the white arms that are nevertheless covered in fine brown hair, this kind of nauseous image yeah. of the female body. Yeah. And I mean, you don't see it so much in this poem, but I, I know that, I know that there's a certain reading of the wasteland that would suggest that, uh, that, that there's a, kind of homoerotic undercurrent to that and that that Elliot had these these very strong emotional feelings let's just say I don't want to put I don't want to put any particular word on them uh for a young man who was killed in World War One mm-hmm. so um it was not a happy marriage his second marriage was by all accounts much happier mm-hmm. although I know a lot of Elliot scholars don't like Valerie Elliot isn't it funny that he married a uh, another V <laughs> yeah. um uh, I know a lot of Elliot scholars don't like Valerie Elliot because she kept a pretty tight fist on the Elliot estate after he died, but he was happy anyway. Mm. Yep. Well, Michael, the title um, gives us some data, uh, but there's also an Italian epigraph. And <laughs> so, <laughs> in what ways do, do these two pieces does the 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 title um and the untranslated para, uh, epigraph um if we translate the epigraph if we read the title rightly are we better prepared or not for understanding this poem always hard to tell with Eliot's references to other literary works sometimes i do think he's just messing with us and especially in the mm-hmm. wasteland mm-hmm. i think the footnotes are pretty spectacularly unhelpful <laughs> but um just as a matter of trivia, the the uh, epigraph comes from Canto Twenty Seven of the Inferno, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna I'll just read it. This is Mark Muse's translation. If I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to see the world, most certainly this flame would cease to flicker. But since no one, if I've heard the truth, ever returns alive from this deep pit with no fear of dishonor, I answer you. Uh, it may, it makes sense that this would be the epigraph because you have here a, a man who is terrified of falling out of the social world that he nevertheless hates Mm -hmm. he is in a sort of living hell but it's a comedic living hell and so he's addressing us as someone as as people who are not connected to that world that we Mm -hmm. we have not been invited to this party in some way and yet um we are we are given access to his inner thoughts the uh the person speaking that and i do not speak italian so i'm going to try to pronounce this and i will probably pronounce it poorly the person speaking it is guido da la da montefeltro who according to here's here's what musa says he's he's another famous deceiver a soldier who became a friar in his old age but was untrue to his vows when at the urging of pope boniface the eighth he counseled the use of fraud in the pope's campaign against the colonna family do you guys think that fraud plays a uh, a major role in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock? I mean, I could see it like some sort of failure to be true to himself and thus a form of fraud. It's it's like he, he lies to himself a number of times in the poem, but I'm not sure it matters so much that this is from the, the circle of the fraudulent. Mm. It, it, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those cases where just how deep, 
does the illusion want you to dig? Um, yeah. Right, yeah. And that, that intertextuality Danny's talking about, I mean, it, it mm-hmm. does make... That, that's why one of the reasons The Wasteland is so difficult, and I know this isn't a show about The Wasteland, but I've mentioned it 45 times. <laughs> how do you talk about Elliot without talking about The Wasteland? Exactly. That, that's what makes The Wasteland so difficult to interpret, or one of the things that makes it so difficult to interpret is when he's quoting Spencer, how familiar with Spencer do we need to be? Right. You, you know, and how much how much does the poem depend on our previous interpretation of, what is it, the shepherd's calendar? Mm-hmm. That he's that he's quoting, so um, yeah, I, I think I think a lot of these are open questions, and so a, a reading of Proofrock that takes fraud into account, I think, would probably be an illuminating reading. But at the same time, I think it's also probably taking it too far. Mm-hmm. So I, that is probably not a very helpful answer. <laughs> I, I I tend to think, and and. And at least, at least in the wasteland, I keep coming back to the line, you know, these are fragments we've shored against our ruin. And um, uh, whenever I think about the intertextuality of that particular poem, uh, I think of it as as intentionally fragments. Um, that he, he was just desperately trying to rescue mm-hmm. Western culture. Yeah. So that so that the little bits that are grabbed are, you know, all you've got is this bit. Anyways, that's just me. Yeah. What What about the title? What What What's What's in What's in a name? <laughs> it's a silly title, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Proofrock is a name that could have come right out of Dickens, mm-hmm. um, who has a variety of very silly names that we're supposed to take kind of semi seriously. In what sense is this a love song? I have no idea. Except, I, I think the title sets up the kind of comedy mm-hmm. of the of the poem. I mean, it's a it's an uproariously funny poem in places in that comedy of manners style. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've I've never known what to make of the poem other than other than the comedic value or the title other than the comedic value. I, I do think the title is also derivative of like earlier forms of poetry. Uh, and this is something I read in doing some research for the show. Um, and I, I wish I could give credit to where I read it. Um, I was on the MLA database all day yesterday trying to uh, not prepare myself to not sound like an idiot today. So, uh, but the, um, um, but the title does sort of refer to, uh, was it Spencer or done uh some uh love songs in that tradition and and Mm. i think um the next question we'll get into sort of modernism in this this poem's place in modernism in the way that it is a transition into modernism i think it's carrying that tradition into sort of this modern age um and i would say uh to elaborate back on the uh intertextuality the uh the moment that he's addressing in dante's interesting in its relationship to other uh, uh, references in the poem, other allusions in the poem itself. So you have, he mentions Lazarus coming back from this sort of other world to tell people what he's found there. Um, And there's also uh, the idea that the character here is talking to a ghost is in Hamlet, which is obviously a a major reference in this poem too. So it's almost like, I feel like um, this is a character who's, experience of the world is entirely mediated through literature through uh, the mm-hmm. canon as it will right and and so the the fact that it opens with this very um 
erudite uh, allusion to maybe the canonical work of, of Western art, right, um, is, mm-hmm. I think, a perfectly appropriate because that's the only way Prufrock can even uh, uh, observe the world uh, is through the lens that this, this tradition has uh, offered him. Mm-hmm. Which turns out just to cripple him emotionally. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talked about Highway 61 Revisited last week, and I mean, it's hard not to think of the, the Dylan line um, about u- useless and pointless knowledge, mm-hmm. that, that all, all this education that Proofrock slash Elliot has undergone only makes him so self-conscious he can barely attend a party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I've got a, I, I've got an understanding of the love song part of it, but I think once we, when we get a little bit further down, um, that'll, that'll come out. But, um, was it the Amoretti that, uh, that you were referring to Danny, uh, with, with Spencer, Spencer's Amoretti? Uh, his, uh, that's possible. His, I think that might his little it. sequence of love songs. I think that was it actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's, there's, a a pose that he makes in the Amoretti, um, not in all of them, but in a number of those sonnets, um, the speaker in the sonnet kind of positions himself as the kind of the awkward older suitor who is um, definitely feeling um, more clunky in this whole courtship gang than the other than the other um, rivals. Uh, so, uh, it, which is funny because Elliot at least is what twenty two. Yeah, he's really young. <laughs> Yeah, but but the persona is not. Yeah, I think is uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, May- maybe Proofrock is an old man. Well, or maybe, may- maybe not yeah, old, but he is balding. <laughs> That's true, and he says hey. I grow old, but yeah. hey, no. you know, Bruce Springsteen wrote, uh, "We ain't so young anymore" when he was twenty-five. So, <laughs> fair enough. Um, you know, one other thing about the name Proofrock, I, I did come across a reference that in, so he's from St. Louis originally and in St. Louis, there is a, uh, oh gosh, it was like a, some sort of construction company or something like that. whose name was Proofrock. Uh, and so, uh, Elliot himself had no active memory of drawing on that name, but he said, you know, it could have been just so internalized. I, I didn't, I wasn't aware that I remembered it kind of. Uh, and so there is possibly a biographical precedent for that name. Um, in addition to the fact that Michael's right, it does sound like it's right out of Dickens. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Danny, uh, this poem in some ways to me feels like I'm entering a lost world. Um, the world of modernism's youth, which, you know, is weird for me because I'm a medievalist living in a post postmodern age. <laughs> so, um, what is modernist about this poem, both its, its form and its language and in the world within the poem that this character Prufrock inhabits? Um, well, I mean, it's difficult in the way that we imagine modernist poetry to be right. Uh, and, and, and yet it's early in that, that, that form. Uh, and so, right. like I said before, there's this sort of a transition almost, um, into modernism. It's like someone like you, you put it very nicely, modernism's youth. Um, you do see a lot of the formal traits that we associate with modernism, the fragmentation, um, of, of the world when he, 
uh, talks about women's arms. It's he's just he's describing people uh, in kind of very zoomed in close up fragments. They're not whole people, right? It's the mm-hmm. that sort of fragmented um, perspective that he brings onto things. Um, and I would even say Michael talked about the. Um, the let us go then you and I right at the beginning of the poem as referencing an external person. But I also think there's a way to read this as if he's talking to his self from he's, there's an alienated self even Hmm. that he's, he's addressing. Uh, I can imagine a man looking into a mirror uh, trying to talk himself into going out for the night. Uh, And and so, yeah. And so uh, to me, I, uh, this is a, uh, another like form of modernism and right from the beginning, I'm reminded of Kafka um, at the beginning of this. Oh, by the way, I really love the Kafka episode you guys did. I just got to it. <laughs> I was way late getting to that, but the uh, <laughs> in the penal Connell, that was really good. I meant to comment on it, but I didn't get to it. I was remodeling my bathroom. So, um, but uh, this following the streets, uh, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. That sort of. Um, frustration at arriving at some answer that is not there reminds me very much of Kafka, who we think of as being kind of high modernist. Uh, and, and so, and we never really get any kind of clue as to what that overwhelming question is in this poem as well. It's almost like the end of the castle, uh, by, by mm-hmm. Kafka. Um, and so, um, and the idea of artifice, everything is, uh, um, uh, is about, uh, a presentation of self, uh, and you have this kind of obsession over authenticity. Um, Karen Swallow Pryor wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago in the Atlantic, uh, and and she compared. Uh, she actually made a really compelling case. I think that this is the uh, like the almost like the archetype for the hipster. Um, uh, like Prufrock hmm. is sort of like a proto hipster, and all of his concerns are with this idea of authenticity. And yet in trying to achieve this authenticity, this trueness, um, it's just artifice constructed to try to achieve that. And these are very uh, modernist themes. And, um, and all the way down into the geography of this poem, the streets, uh, uh, the streets are a prominent, almost uh, character in this poem uh, in the way that they're described. And and the fog is even humanized or, or, you know, animated at least. Um, the I'm these cavernous streets that basically uh, construct a person's life within these uh, into these very kind of constricted uh, fragmented views. And so people are isolated into their little apartments above the street. The streets lead to sort of corners and dead ends. They have insidious intent. Right. Uh, and so mm-hmm. the, 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 the idea of urban space as a modernist kind of tablet is, uh, is also here in this poem. Uh, so yeah, this is, uh, if you want a primer on modernism, I don't know that you could, this is a great introduction for students into that because this isn't as difficult as say the wasteland is. Um, and right. yet, uh, it does sort of introduce you to all of the, uh, motifs and the, the forms of modernism. And it's emotionally resonant, I think in a way that, <laughs> The wasteland is emotionally resonant if you've ever been severely depressed. This is this is emotionally re- resonant if you've ever been nervous about going into a public, which I think is most people, especially most teenagers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, the I mean, what, one one of you, you, we've we've commented on the the mismatch between the age of Eliot and the age of the uh, of the persona. Um, in, in some ways, uh, I, I feel the anxiety 
in in this poem as someone who is remembering that anxiety of youth being paralyzed by the possibility that it would continue. Mm. Um, and I, I, I do remember it at distinct points in my early twenties, realizing that I didn't feel like I'd leveled up into manhood. <laughs> realizing like, Oh crap. Is this, is, am I just going to be 14 forever? <laughs> well, yeah, in a certain way you will. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That reminds me so much, um, and I don't know if Trilling actually addresses this in that ding, essay. Ding. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, am I in the bingo game now? Um, sorry. That's an honor, guys. Thank you. Uh, the uh, On the teaching of modern literature, his anxiety about bringing this type of literature, whether he mentions Eliot uh, in specifics or not, I can't remember, um, is that it's... Uh, by its nature, very personal. And it asks kind of devastating personal questions, which to him interferes somewhat with the pedagogical roles of a classroom. Uh, and he, he sort of has anxiety about uh, addressing these things. And I find myself in a similar position, um, David, when I teach this poem, uh, with how do I teach this without talking about why it, it hurts me so like personally, right? And is that appropriate mm-hmm. to bring up in front of students? Like, I don't know. I think uh, I, I have a similar kind of anxiety there. Yeah. Well, I'm a millennial, so I'm perfectly comfortable <laughs> oversharing. Yeah. <laughs> Proof Rock is the opportunity. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Lena Dunham is my god. Right. <laughs> Oof. Well, let's talk about Proof Rock himself. Who who is this guy, and why are why is this visit, and why is this question so important to him, and how are those pressures really kind of on the outside shaping him on the inside? Before I get there, I want to talk about how his inside is shaping the outside okay. in, that, in that very famous line at the beginning, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Mm-hmm. That, that's his consciousness projecting onto the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, I think if you tried to draw a, draw a picture of the sky uh, like a patient etherized upon a table, it would be fairly difficult to do. I guess maybe it's just an overcast sky. But this, th- he is he is constructing the world outside of him, not so much with his intellect as with his moods. Mm. And because he's such an intellectual and intellectualized person, he is not really in in contact with his moods. Do, do you know what I mean? They, yeah. they they run along without him because he works so intellectually. So this is a guy who exists in some sort of high society and yet is completely disgusted by it, both disgusted with the physical bodies of the women at this party, as we talked about with the with the arms, but also with what they have to say. I mean, the another famous line that's repeated several times is, uh, in the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And and you just you just assume here that their conversation is not meaningful that they're they're like him they have been educated enough to have these conversations but not educated enough to actually see through the surface level of the art to what is deep and meaningful about it and so they just kind of walk around the party talking about Michelangelo which I don't know still sounds pretty good to me <laughs> uh, compared to compared to, to the, the other things you could talk about at a party. <laughs> He's very concerned, as Danny said, with authenticity. He's concerned 
not so much with being authentic because I don't think he thinks it's possible. He, he says there will be time. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Mm. So, so I mean, there is no, there's no real question of approaching these other human beings as a human being, only as a construction that you're doing and that you know they're doing. And there's nothing about this party that's real, and yet uh, we all go to them and feel the need to play the game. Hmm. At the same time, he is he is really. Um, damagingly self-conscious to the point i mean again another this line this poem is basically um wall-to-wall famous lines yeah the the, one one of the more famous is toward the end um do i dare to eat a peach this (laughs) this very like there's nothing bold or uh brave about that and yet he's not even sure he can do that like this is this is how much he cares about the opinions of these people whom he hates and has nothing but scorn for well i have known i I have known or heard of people who will not eat certain things in public because they're messy things to eat well and and, i mean i I think a lot of people when they go to a party will choose white wine instead of red wine because they don't want to spill it all over their shirt right and he's he's thinking about his boiled shirt front which he needs to keep immaculate you know um what the line right after that is white flannel trousers so yeah well, I mean, when he says that I will wear white flan- my 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 uh, the the flannel trousers and walk along the beach, um, that's uh, that's early twentieth century leisure wear, right? <laughs> He's like, right. I, I just want to go home and put on my comfy sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, you wouldn't wear that to a party. Um, so not the sort of party he's going to, anyway. Yeah. The the other thing is he feels he has this inexpressible thing that if he even found the words to express it, the people at the party would make fun of him. Um, so uh, he says, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all, if one... Settling a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all. <laughs> that is not it at all. So this like incredible miracle, the, the greatest miracle of all, a person coming back from the dead, they, he is afraid they're going to receive it in an utterly blasé manner. Mm. Mm. Which we've, we've all been there, right? I mean, I think part of the human condition in the, in the modern world is to feel that you have this inexpressible something at the core of your being. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're young, to feel like nobody nobody who, even if they could hear it, would possibly understand it. It's a very teenage teenage emotion that many of us carry into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you think the question is? Uh, you, you think it is this kind of inexpressible ultimate kind of thing? Well, especially if you read him as speaking to his own psyche at the beginning of the poem, which I think mm-hmm. is a, a perfectly reasonable reading, he's not allowing himself or the society he's moving in is not allowing him to even formulate the question. Mm. So in some sense, you have a meta question here. You have the question of what the question is. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Yeah. That could, that could mean on the one hand, what's wrong with you? Why are you, why are you acting so strangely on our way to this party? 
And on the other hand, like the, he, he says, oh, do not ask what is it, right after the line about the overwhelming question, which then trails off into ellipses. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't think he even knows what the question is, it's just that he has one and he's afraid to ask it. Maybe I'm a little too prosaic, but I always took it from the well because of the 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 love song in in the in the title. I always assumed that it was some kind of a romantic overture, um, which is why the anxiety about the response to the question is particularly aimed at those who, after the question is asked, will uh, will re will uh, uh, let's see where. Where's the what's the phrase? Well, if one settling a pillow by her head should say that is not what I meant at all. Um, Something that, sexual about that. Yeah, that there's that there's the her. You know, it's 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 not a he that he's worried about reacting. It's a her, and and that the response that he's worried about getting isn't no. It's that's not what I meant. Um, you don't get it. Yeah, or or. Why did you think you could ask that question? <laughs> I never meant you to to, to ha- get the impression that that was a question you could ask. Something like that. But, you know, that that's because I really want this to be a story, and maybe that's also young me projecting. Well, I think I think the poem, like like most great modernist poetry, mm-hmm. maintains all these readings simultaneously. I mean, I... I yeah. It, it's it's pretty close to inexhaustible. Well, you know, even if you do take prosaically, um, the thing that he the thing that he offers, even if it is a, a a specific romantic overture to a specific person, it is still putting himself on the line in a particular way, and he uses all of these all of these metaphors to kind of play up the stakes. Um, right. So, so if it is a romantic overture he's making, he invests it with metaphysical importance. Yeah. Do I dare? Thus, disturb it's the, the eternal universe? footman who's who's laughing at him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And he would I, disturb it, the universe with this question. <laughs> <laughs> there was a when I was at Case, there was a poster on the wall in the hallway that said, "Do I dare disturb the universe?" And someone wrote on it with bees. That's all. It's every time I. <laughs> Every time I read this poem, I'm expecting to see that line now. Um, yeah. I once uh, it, the, the the men's room at the men's room at UGA always had like stuff written all over. Is the men's room in the uh, English department? So it was all this super high class stuff. And I remember once I wrote shanty 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 like from the end of from the end of the wasteland. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, such nerds we are. Uh, Although well, uh, the best one, the best one was this wall was a palimpsest. Yes. Well, that that was at the beginning of the semester after they'd painted over the previous <laughs> oh, semester. Um, well, <laughs> I remember that one. Um, going back though to this romantic overture thing, I think one thing that is. Um, tragic, I guess, about the character then, uh, the figure in this in this poem, is that I, I feel like romantic or even human interaction isn't possible when you live in such an intellectualized state all the time. And, and, and I think that, mm. um, and he's he's part of the problem here. Uh, like he sees everything as an image of something else, and so the women are just sort of like um, 
fragments of their bodies, right? When she describes their hands and their arms and and the clothing they wear. And even when they're talking about Michelangelo, uh, they are like an image of people talking about Michelangelo. They're not like actual people, right? And so um, this way of we aestheticize everything um, and mm-hmm. therefore kind of remove it from its humanity in that way. And and I think he even be, falls victim to that himself. So in the, in the way that the women come and go talking of Mike, Michelangelo, um, we could just sort of picture them looking at, uh, you know, a statue or something that he's uh, constructed. And then fast forward near the end of the poem, when he's having anxiety about how he's going to be perceived among these people. Um, and I have known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, right? And so um, he's he becomes an object of contemplation himself and not a human. Uh, and I think that's one mm-hmm. thing that um, really kind of resonates to me about this is like, we don't treat each other as humans. We treat each other as objects. And I think that's a, a problem of modernity that he is identifying and that the, the poetic form that he's using actually addresses. Mm. So interesting. I, I'd never noticed this before, Danny, until you read it. That that image of the gaze is verbalized. Mm-hmm. The eyes that fixed you in a formulated phrase. I mean, yep. mm-hmm. eyes don't make phrases. Yeah. So, like, like even that is if you if you think of language as being the intellectual medium, even even something as fundamental as seeing has words attached to it for Eliot mm-hmm. or for Prufrock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating to me because you there's there's these little phrase these little phrases that are in here not not the ones that the eyes fix you with um in which you can see each of these moments as he's uh you can see when he's climbing up the stair. You can see him as he's kind of at the doorway um thinking about how is my coat? What is my collar doing? How is my necktie working? What will people think of what I look like when I walk in the room? And then, you know, he, he's up to the point where he can hear the voices and the music in the farther room. And then he walks into the room and he sees the eyes. And then in the next, in the next uh, stanza, and I have known the arms. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't meet the eyes. Yeah. He sees the eyes and he looks down, and so instead, what he's looking at is people's arms. You know, he he's he's he he's the 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 gaze has terrified him, and and his gaze has now retreated. And that, but then his gaze his gaze dismembers these women. Mm-hmm. Well, in 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 the sense that he can't he cannot encounter them face to face. Um. He can only he can only encounter them in this in this kind of tangential way. And to try to like he overanalyzes them as objects, yep. right? Um, just as yep. he would in literature, right? <laughs> um, yep. I, and it, himself. Well, well, it reminds me of of myself when I'm in a situation where I can't where where something about what's going on at the center of the action is something that. I just can't handle. And then I suddenly become really, really interested in the pattern of the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he, he, he just starts, he just becomes arm obsessed in this, in this odd, odd way. 
But uh, that reminds me of The Shining um, <laughs> when Michael or when uh, Jack Nicholson becomes obsessed with the patterns of that that hotel. Right. That's what drives him uh. insane. Uh, and, and he sort of looks into this labyrinth and the, the carpet, as you mentioned, is labyrinthian in that. And so when you start getting lost in these patterns, that is when you kind of lose touch with your humanity, I think, in this poem um, as well. So. Yeah. Um, and when and you mentioned when you started reading David um, about the necktie, uh, so this again the very meticulous presentation of self, uh, this necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin, and that pin of course is revisited as the thing that then puts him on display for everybody else, right? And so that yep. that's he's part of his own aestheticization there. Yep. He's also like shrinking down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with yeah. the pants rolled up. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the further he gets, you know, as he's kind of working himself up to walking in the room, he keeps saying, there will be time, there will be time, there will be time for indecisions and revisions, and <laughs> I've got all the time in the world. And then the afternoon slips by. Mm. Um. So we've we've talked about some of these literary illusions, and I think we need to venture into uh, into some of these little literary corners of the poem. So you, you've already talked, uh, Danny, about uh, about the intertextuality in Elliot, Elliot in general, and a Prufrock's habitual interpretation of himself in terms of this literary illusion, in terms of the the, the canon that he's apparently immersed himself in, like Elliot. So. What what literary characters is Prufrock like or not like, and why does that matter in this poem? Well, I mean, like I said, he uh, begins the he frames the entire poem with a literary illusion, right? Uh, with Dante, mm. um, and so that it's a great question because I mean, it's the driving thing that that is what alienates him from everybody else it is where the modernist problem of alienation comes from uh, in this poem, and so. Uh, Again, so like going back to the tradition of the individual talent, um, the, the poet is never free of the tradition, right? He just sort of mm-hmm. makes new use of it. And, and so um, in, in the same way, you see this character, this, uh, this speaker, um, kind of a slave to that tradition. And so a couple of them that I think are prominent and are worth talking about, Hamlet is obviously uh, – either explicitly referenced or implied uh, in several places in this poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the, near the end, he comes to the discovery that he is not Prince Hamlet, right? <laughs> uh, and so this is uh, what's interesting about that is that it isn't that he doesn't have Hamlet's indecision. It's that he's not even um, as... Uh, as uh as monumental as hamlet uh he is an attendant lord one that will do to swell a progress start a scene or two advise the prince an easy tool he's basically polonius if you think about mm. um who he's uh, referring himself to uh is kind of the fool right he's not even the indecisive loser he's worse than that <laughs> kind of yeah. uh and, and so he has this uh to his uh, engagement with literature in, in the tradition is something that demeans him um, with that uh, allusion to Hamlet. Um, and I think that you have um, uh, also this theological, I mean, there are a lot of biblical references in this as well, um, that that whole thing, there will be time, 
that seems right out of Ecclesiastes to me, this, uh, that, um, a time for everything, um, bit in that, in that book. And so, uh, he's drawing on this kind of religious tradition as well. And, and he's sort of constructed out of that tradition as well as the literary tradition. Um, mm-hmm. at some point in here, oh, I can find it or not. Um, he says, uh, though I have seen my head growing slightly bald on a black, on a, uh, brought in upon a platter. That's, a pretty explicit reference to John the Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I am no prophet. <laughs> and so he, he he sort of tries to compare himself to these inherited figures of literature and theology to which he cannot live up to. Um, so just as he cannot be Prince Hamlet, even though he's got all the anxieties of Hamlet, um, he is not actually even as worthy as Prince Hamlet. Um, though he is sort of uh, this kind of prophet to this group of people, he is not accomplishing the work of a, co- a prophet. So the anxiety that the the character of Prufrock experiences and has is in, in many ways constructed through the literary illusions that he makes. Uh, Michael, you, you probably have a much more sensitive eye than me. Uh, uh, like there are many, many other illusions here. Well, I mean, to call himself the fool would be kind of self-aggrandizing. I mean, we did an episode on fools a few years ago, and like in, in a lot of ways, the fool is the smartest, most capable character in like mm. King Lear. Like, mm-hmm. like the fool is the one who actually sees things as they are. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a sense in which calling himself almost the fool, I, I think maybe he might be misunderstanding what a fool is. Because, mm-hmm. uh, or, or maybe, maybe in some sense, he really is the fool because he does see through the kind of paper trappings of this social engagement that he's Mm -hmm. gone to. If he's seeing himself as Polonius though, uh, Polonius is not a, he's not a good fool. He's not the insightful fool of, of, you know, Twelfth Night or, or as you like it or Lear. Um, Polonius is famously a blowhard. Yeah. Yeah. Politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse. High sentence, right? Yeah. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it funny that uh, Polonius's advice in Hamlet has become like advice people give seriously, neither a borrower nor, nor a lender be, <laughs> stuff like that? Yeah. To thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. Which goes back to the question of authenticity that yeah. this character is interested in, right? Yeah, and it, and it, but it seems at this point he realizes, you know, all all of that that I have in me makes me makes me someone unfit to be the protagonist. Um, I'm unfit to be the one who takes the decisive action. But I mean, the thing about Hamlet is Hamlet won't take a decisive action. the The entire action of that play is that mm. that Hamlet refuses to kill. Claudius until he he is absolutely certain that he should. Except yeah. that absolute certainty never comes. Except that everything in the play hinges on Hamlet's indecision. Nothing hinges on Frufrock's indecision. As Updike says, uh, <laughs> now that there's no more royalty, uh, you can ding there too, I suppose. <laughs> now that there's now that there's no more royalty, either everyone's a hero or no one is, and I vote for everyone. <laughs> Maybe Elliot votes for no one. I mean, th- this feels very no one ish. Yeah, I, mean, I-, I love that w- what you had to say about the the, the John the Baptist reference. Um, but when he uh, when he says that 
I am I am no prophet and you know I'm no prophet and this is no great matter um, you know all, I, I will bear all of the high stakes of a John the Baptist but the message that I have to bear is not is not a serious one I'll get my head chopped off for something unimportant mm. <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty bleak yeah <laughs> Um, I take the uh, the mermaid thing, walking, mm. uh, he hearing the mermaid singing each to each, but he doesn't think that they'll sing to him, um, which is probably, the, this is one of the saddest lines to me in the whole, um, in the whole uh, poem. Um, I, I've, uh, I've tended to see that as a reference to the Odyssey. Um, in which it's Odysseus tied to the mast. He's the one who gets to sing, the, who gets to hear the beautiful song of the sirens. The sirens try to lure him, but all those singing sirens—they're not—they're not singing for you know extra number three who's rowing like back there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's—he's he's made himself an extra in his own story. Mm. One of these transcendent things happening all around him, mm-hmm. and he can't access them. Yeah. Well, in the end, Prufrock's moment of greatness passes, and he walks away from the question, whatever that question is. So I think we've been kind of circling around this anyway, Michael. So for an existentialist, is this poem, is this a tragedy? Is this a sin? Is this what hell looks like for an existentialist? Um, I feel like I feel like there are things to say about this from that angle. Uh, to to return to Updike because that's the only thing I know. Uh, <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates has this line about uh, Updike's stories are tragedies that I, I can't remember her exact phrasing. Refuse to take on the weight of tragedies and thus become comedies. Mm. And I, I think there's something similar here. Like, uh, like Prufrock is ends up being a figure for fun, both because we recognize ourselves in him and because the stakes here are simultaneously so low and so high. On the one hand, he's dealing with the most important thing of all. Like, how do I get by in the world? Who am I and how can I maintain that existence in a world that is indifferent at best? Um, and And... You know, on the other hand, it's 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 very low stakes because it's basically, will I have the nerve to talk at this at this party I'm going to? Mm-hmm. Um, either way, you're right. He fails. He has he has all of this self reflection without any genuine self knowledge. Mm-hmm. We we get a sense of what he's not, but we don't really get a sense of what he is because the poem is narrated to us by him and. Um, and he doesn't know who he is. So yeah, I would call him an existential failure. Whether you want to call that a tragedy or a comedy, I don't know. Certainly, Proofrock seems to feel like he's in hell. Mm-hmm. But and and I mean, you've got you've got a sense of that hell is other people stuff. Although if if Proofrock used that phrase, I don't think he would mean the same thing that Sartre meant by it. Uh, for Sartre, hell is other people because they show you who you really are. And for Prufrock, hell is other people because they can't really see who you are, and so they pin you up against the wall like a bug. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 rest of time avoiding the gazes 
you know, that dart around the room like swords. Um, yeah, the, the, this, this, the tremendous stakes on this, I think is something that, you know, just, you know, I'm not, I, I, I have not done hardcore existentialist reading everything, everything that I know or think about that I've absorbed off of you, Michael. Um, but the, the degree of importance that he invests in, um, the simple act of self-assertion in a social context. Um, the stakes of that, on in some ways, it seems frivolous and a little bit absurd to say, like, why is this so important to you, right? You know, this is this is not such a big deal. You need to you need to realize it's not such a big deal, proof rock. Except it kind of is an enormous deal, um, because it doesn't seem as if he's ever ever going to step up. As if this is always what it's going to be for him. And if he can't play putt-putt, he's certainly never going to play golf. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I want to read a sequel to Proof Rock that takes place on a miniature golf course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that that's a McSweeney's article. Playing <laughs> with T.S. Eliot. How clever. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. Uh, does this Someone not also... What you guys are talking about reminds me so much of being a, an English teacher in a world where no one's an English major, right? Uh, and, and everybody, <laughs> everybody in front of you is there just by obligation, and you have to try to, try to make them care about stuff that yeah. you know yourself isn't really that important, but you have to pretend like it is. <laughs> like, I feel like uh, that's the state that I sort of live in. That, that's If I have an anxiety about my job, it's it's that. Uh, it's that, it's that uh, facing a, a, a group of people who don't care what you have to say <laughs> and trying to make them care. And that, to me, is yeah. the most debilitating part about the job. So, Kelly's other majors. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, speaking of alienation, um, it appears as if Michael has fallen out of our little Skype planet. So Danny and I will be finishing up uh, by ourselves. Uh, Eliot's later poems are like Gothic cathedrals. Um, you can always find a new little niche or a corner of details that you haven't observed before and just kind of camp there for a while. Love Song of Jail for Proofrock is smaller. It's a Gothic chapel, maybe. But there are still some interesting things that we've left unnoticed. So, Danny, what would you like to point our listeners to uh, as we round out this conversation? Yeah, I think we've pinned Michael wriggling to a wall somewhere. Oh, um, that's, oh no. <laughs> that's where he's at. So, I'm sorry, Michael. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I have any more passages to sort of talk about. But as a, as a poem itself, um, I really think that this poem is great to teach, uh, particularly because it's difficult uh, at first blush, which is, I think, what you want in a teaching situation. You want to disorient your students on some level. This poem certainly does that to, a, to an undergraduate who's not encountered anything like this before. Um, and yet, because it's so imagistic and so image-driven, um, you can. I, what I often do is put people into small groups, 
assign them a particular stanza and have them come up with images uh, uh, that the images that reveal themselves in that stanza. And as we talk about this poem from that perspective as a class, um, the, 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 the image of the poem constructs itself. And I think that they are able then to um, uh, kind of understand how this kind of poetry works uh, and then get to the more kind of human crisis that Prufrock is um, going through uh, as he uh, as he speaks in this poem and um, uh, and in addition to that um, because he's so uh, obsessed with his own image I mean it's very contemporary this uh, this poem hasn't necessarily aged uh, out, out of existence it's still I mean he's uh, he's from the Instagram generation mm. <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah. uh, and, and it, because he sort of takes little tiny snapshots of the world and uh, and I feel like that uh, uh, on that level, the content of the poem um, is still timely, uh, as well as the, uh, the form. Um, and one last thing I just want to kind of point you to as a resource is a, a fellow named Julian Peters, who, who draws comics. And, and online, he has this blog, this WordPress blog, um, Julian Peters Comics. And he's done a, a really an amazing version of this poem, uh, frame, line for line, image for image, as it appears to him. And, and it's a wonderful poem. And the fact that it's so powerful, I, I wonder sometimes if it, it too uh, powerfully uh, impresses on me his interpretation of these images. And I hmm. wonder how much uh, of, uh, of, of my understanding of the poem I've given over to him. But uh, it, it's a really, I think, a telling uh, because comics are such a, a powerful medium uh, in our contemporary world. This is a way that another way, at least, that the poem um, remains contemporary because it lends itself extremely well to our contemporary ways of, of uh, understanding and mediating the world. And so I would really hi highly recommend going to that Julian Peters comic uh, version of this poem. If nothing else, if you teach this poem, it's a wonderful teaching tool. So um, and that's about all I have. So cool. Well, I want to leave you guys with the the end of the poem. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I've heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We've lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed in seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. And I, I love the end of that because there's this, this moment of, of almost peace. You get about five lines of imagined <laughs> literary poetic tranquility, but then there is the interruption of other people. And uh, ironically, as he wakes up from his fantasy of mermaids, uh, that's when he drowns. <laughs> so, dear listeners, that's uh, that is our proof rock episode. Um, we've uh, I, I've enjoyed talking about it uh, with you, Danny, and, um, uh, and I have too appreciated it. Uh, what Michael had to say as well, and and uh, uh, apologies to him, and apologies to uh, you, dear listeners, for uh, for him having to to drop out like that. But, you know, technical difficulties and all the rest of it. 
Well, I have no idea what we're doing next week because uh, I think that was Michael's call or Nathan's <laughs> call. I can't remember. In any event, it will be a surprise. We'll do something cool, as we always do. Uh, in the meanwhile, um, if you have any comments or questions or whatever to make about this particular episode, you can post them on the show notes on the blog, ChristianHumanist.org. Uh, you can post them on our Facebook wall. Uh, or you can send them as an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Um, so this is David Grubbs on behalf of the present Danny Anderson and the absent Michael Farmer. Um, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is, I believe, still Amberly Copeland. And I will leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.